And this morning, we will complete and review and look at what we've been studying for the last 13 weeks. It took us 13 weeks to get through over 130 verses. So yes, we kept our 10 verse a week goal pace of the first two chapters of Luke. And as we've gone scene by scene, event by event, we've tried to follow the text where it takes us, I thought it would be helpful before we move on to chapter three, before we jump ahead 20 years in Jesus' life, to look at some of the main themes, to look at some of the main focuses of these opening chapters. Sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees, and there are themes that have shown up again and again and again in each of the narrative chunks, which when you stand back and see them, I think are are quite significant. And I think there's application for us to draw. The first two chapters of Luke is much like the, the sequence in a movie before the, the, uh, you know, the, the big name of the movie comes on. You know, they'll show you about two or three minutes of, of plot, and then here comes the title credits. And, that, and that's kind of what's going on here. We get the birth announcements of Jesus and John the Baptist. We get the dedication of the book. We get the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, Jesus in the temple, and then we leave him there at 12 years old and we jump ahead to 20 years later and we hit the ground running. When we turn the page to chapter three, John the Baptist is already in ministry. People are already coming out to him. He's not getting started. We show up mid-cycle. We show up while the action's taking place. And Luke has set up themes for us, and he's set up overarching concepts for us that I just want to take a morning and look at. Now, there's a lot of references here. You'll notice not a single one of them is outside of Luke. So we might be moving around between these two chapters, but if you can just sort of keep your one or two pages open, you should be good. We will not begin by reading all of the first two chapters, but I would like to begin with prayer. Lord God, as we look at your word We want to see Jesus high and lifted up. We want to see the glory of your son. We want to grow in confidence in your word. We want to believe. We want to find satisfaction for our souls, comfort for our fears. So Lord God, open our eyes, remove the veil. Give us eyes to see and ears that hear. Cause the increase of the seed of your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So with our time this morning, as I've prayerfully thought through Luke's chapter 1 and 2, I just want to highlight four lessons we can learn from Luke's prologue. Four lessons that we can learn from Luke's prologue. These are four themes that I see coming through again and again and again in the narratives that we have read. So let's dive in. The first of which is this. Have certainty in the Scripture. Have certainty in the Scripture. And if you just look at the very beginning of the book, as Luke gives us his introduction, which is a very helpful thing to do. Not all books of the Bible have these sort of purpose statements, but when they show up, they're incredibly helpful because if you're trying to read Deuteronomy or Leviticus and you're trying to figure out, get your pulse on exactly what is the heartbeat of what Moses is doing, you can can discuss that. People have different theories. When an author tells us, this is the main thing. This is why I'm writing. We should pay attention And it's very instructive. Just look at the first four verses. Luke chapter 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke gives us a twofold purpose, the one purpose leading into the next. Just as he's been attentive and following along with everything, and just as he's heard the reports, and just as he has conducted his own research, he thought it would be fitting for him to put together an orderly account. And the reason he wants to put together an orderly account is that Theophilus, you and I, can have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This is the knowing for sure gospel. Notice, it's not even written to somebody who's hearing this message for the first time. It's written to people just like you and me, people who have heard these things. To give certainty, an orderly account to give certainty. That's Luke's stated purpose. And I think Luke has accomplished it. We saw again and again and again in the narrative, the attention to detail, the historical accuracy. Hello? Oh, there we go. That marks, Zeb, don't mess with me. That, uh, that marks true scholarship. Now, there are times when Scripture is given oracularly, meaning God just tells his prophet, hey, say this. And, and we get that from men like Ezekiel, where the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, go and say to Israel such and such. There's no research done there. There's no homework done. God just told Ezekiel what to say, and Ezekiel went and said it. But when we've got books like this where the author claims to have done research, when the text itself is inviting us to compare the events, to compare the details, it holds up again and again and again and again. In Acts in particular, and Acts is the sequel to Luke, as Paul is traveling about the Mediterranean, again and again and again and again, Luke knows the titles of the cities, the form of government, the titles for the various leaders. But we see that even here. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, how it begins. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus over all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. Governor of Syria, I'm sorry. Luke's done his homework. He's not just saying a long time ago, there were once upon a time. He's locking this in history. And by doing so, he's inviting Theophilus to verify these facts isn't he? He's inviting us to verify these facts. Look at how chapter 3 begins. That's where we're going to be next week. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, and Herod being tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetriarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. You don't just fake that. You simply don't. This is a guy who's done his homework. And as archaeology has has, has studied these things again and again and again and again, it's borne out scripture. And so I just want to encourage you that that Luke accomplished what he set out to do. And, And not just Luke, but the entire Bible have certainty regarding these things. You may see ignorant people challenged that Jesus ever exist. Among the academic community, even amongst the unbelieving liberal academic community, these things are no longer debated. It used to be very fanciful back in the early 20th century to think that gospels like Luke and Matthew and John were written third, fourth century somewhere down in Egypt. We know better now. We've found the manuscript evidence. We've found fragments of John's gospel that date from, ooh, 40 years from when it was written. 
We've got fragments of Mark that date within a decade or two of when it was written. No, we know that these accounts were written within the lifespan of eyewitnesses. They bear all the hallmarks of authenticity. Luke set out to write an orderly account. He's, he's achieved it. Have certainty. Have confidence of these things. Don't doubt the scripture. Be certain and believe. Luke engaged in careful research, and Luke evidenced precise knowledge of historical details. And, and one of the things I didn't even notice the first time we are going through it is in both birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus, we're told, now take, take a look here, Luke chapter 1, verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. What, what's that indicate? There are living eyewitnesses. There were people that Theophilus could go and verify these facts with. This didn't happen in secret. You know, this didn't happen in a cave somewhere and they came back. This happened in the middle of a community, a community that was aware of what was going on. We turn to chapter two, what happened with the birth of Jesus. It didn't just happen in secret. Shepherds show up and they announce it to the whole community as well. Again, we've got a group of people who can testify, who can attest the accuracy of these details. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see these things that have happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that have been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Both births happened publicly. Both births involved a community being aware of them. We turn the page to chapter 3. We're going to see that all of Judea was going out to John the Baptist. These things, these events did not happen in secret. And Luke is writing within the lifetime of these eyewitnesses. Luke is inviting verification with the dates and the times he's given. So have certainty in the scripture. Don't doubt. Have, have certainty. Have confidence. God has spoken and he has not stuttered. And that is good news for us because we were to stake our lives. We're going to stake our afterlives. We're going to stake our eternity on what is written in these pages. We can have certainty. Our anchor will hold. The rope will not break. Second, second, have certainty in the scripture. Rely on the sovereign God. Rely on the sovereign God. What does sovereign mean? It means to be in control. It means to be omnipotent. It means to rule. And what do we see again and again and again throughout this two chapters, is God ruling history. Truly, pardoned upon history is his story. History is his story. How so? Well, for starters, not only does God set out to do wonderful and miraculous things, but he wants to tell people beforehand he's going to do it, right? Not only does, does John the Baptist get born to an old, old family, not only does Jesus get born of a virgin, but he sends Gabriel to both of them to tell him, hey, here's what I'm going to do, and then he does it. Here's what I'm going to do, then he does it. Lest there be any confusion, God is in control. Gabriel announced, and here's the blank, exactly what took place. Exactly. To the detail. He announced exactly what took place. It reminds me, in fact, of that, that famous, famous event. Perhaps some of you, well, and probably not many were alive, 
1932 in the third game of the World Series when Babe Ruth gets up to bat in the fifth inning of game three on October 1st at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And during the at-bat, Ruth made a pointing gesture. You, you know this. You've seen the video, right? Ruth makes a pointing gesture. And, and although neither fully confirmed nor refuted, the story goes that Ruth pointed to the centerfield bleachers during the at-bat as a declaration that he would hit a home run to this part of the park. And on the very next pitch, Ruth, in fact, hit a home run to the center field, the exact place that he'd pointed. The home run was his 15th and last in his 41 postseason games. It was said to be one of the greatest home runs in history. Now, the reason that's so impressive is, I mean, the, the guys playing baseball, they're just trying to hit the ball. If you hit the ball a third of the time, you're doing pretty good. And then the audacity and the boldness and the necessary power and control to back it up, to just sort of stand there confidently and point. That's, not only am I going to hit the ball, I'll tell you where I'm going to hit it. And, and that's why people marveled. And that's, that's the type of thing God's doing. He's, he sends Gabriel. I'm, going to, I'm about to do some powerful, miraculous stuff, but I want to tell you what I'm going to do first so that you know that it wasn't by accident. Gabriel announced exactly what took place. Not only that, but we see again and again and again that these events fulfilled the Scriptures. God hadn't just announced what he was going to do days and months beforehand. God had announced what he was going to do hundreds and, in some cases, thousands of years beforehand. And again and again, look, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Gabriel speaking of, of John the Baptist and his ministry. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, what Gabriel is saying is this will be a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. We went and we looked at that. So not only do these events in this story get told beforehand what's going to happen, they're fulfilling much previously written scriptures. And if you've read your Bible, you know just how many prophecies and how many very specific prophecies are fulfilled through the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And what we get from that is this, God is in control. It's, it's not as, sometimes you get this notion that like God and Satan are having this chess match, and God's a really good chess player, and he'll beat Satan in the end, but there's a certain amount of, oh, what am I gonna do now? Oh, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I declare the end from the beginning. The God of the Bible, according to Ephesians 1:11, is working all things. All things, according to the counsel of his will. The God of the Bible, according to Romans 8.28, causes all things, all things to work out for the good of those who love him. That is good news. God is sovereign over history. Turn to chapter 2 again. Beginning in chapter 2. You can't miss it. In those days, a decree, a powerful, mighty decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. Now, there's, there's, there's a marked contrast and irony here when Luke names the world sovereign. And we know the reader, especially if we've read it more than once, this great and powerful worldwide king is flexing his muscles, who's making all men everywhere pick up and move and leave. He's exercising power, isn't he? He is God's pawn fulfilling his purposes. Because this was how 
God was pleased to have Micah fulfilled, that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And even as his enemies try to thwart him, they fulfill his purposes. You see that again and again and again in these narratives. God's will will come to pass. He's ruling history. He's ruling over history now. He's ruling over what I perceive as a mess in parts of the world. And it doesn't mean, just because Caesar here is fulfilling God's purposes doesn't mean that Caesar is justified or righteous. Everything we know about him, he was a terrible person. But God will work not just through the good, but through the bad to accomplish his purposes, just as he worked through Joseph's brothers, selling him into slavery to get him to just the right place to save millions of people from famine. That is the God of Scripture. That is the God of Luke. He is sovereign. And he announces it beforehand. He does that Babe Ruth pointing. I'm going to tell you the way it's going to be. I'm going to tell you how it's all going to end. And it does. And we should marvel. We should take confidence. Because what that means is, and we'll move to our third point, God's plan is unexpectedly wonderful and wise. God's plan is unexpectedly wonderful and wise. What do I mean? Now, we know this story so often. We're told this, these events. But we've got to pause to remember, for Mary at least, I'd say in Joseph too, the announcement was unexpected. It represented a, shall we say, significant alteration to life plan. And what about for Zechariah, John the Baptist's parents? What about them? Do you think this was how they expected things to turn out? Or how's about simply, where would, where would you expect a king to be born? Especially the king of kings. In a palace, perhaps? In a royal birthing room? Now, at every point, God's plan is unexpected. In fact, that's one of the things that we'll see throws off Israel's leaders. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the perfect fulfillment of what was promised. And yet, in many respects, he is unexpected. He is surprising. He isn't who we expect him to be. God's plan, he is ruling perfectly. But just because we know that he is ruling perfectly, do not expect that you should be able to predict every move he's about to make. Don't, don't be surprised when the way your life is turning out is unexpected. Perhaps you're not where you thought you'd be. Perhaps God has brought some news to your life that changed things, shook some things up. Remind yourself from these chapters, God is sovereign. God is in control. God's plan is unexpected. But we know, looking back, just because it's unexpected, just because it's not always what we predict, we see here at least how wonderful and wise it still remains. You can trust God with history. You can trust God with your life. Even as you are perplexed and wonder, how can these things be? God is faithful. He will not break his word. That's from sort of like the first point. The second point is God is powerful. He can, he can accomplish his word, even in and through means that we find unexpected. God's plan is unexpectedly wonderful and wise. The sovereign king of the universe is born in a manger. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. I, I, I wouldn't have predicted that. And yet, it, in the wisdom of God, it pleased him to silence the wisdom of man, to bring to nothing our wisdom. Rely on God. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't fear. Don't fear. 
I, I, I mourn for the suffering of the Brewer family. I mourn for the suffering of the Starmer family. But I'm not worried. There's real sorrow. There's real pain. There's real anguish. There's real suffering. Let there be no confusion or angst. God's plan is wise and good. And we, we don't always see it now. There are plenty of things that I don't see the wisdom of in this life. And I have to say, God, you know what you're doing. I wouldn't have done it that way. Good thing I'm not God. And that's, that's a fine place to be. Just because you believe this doesn't mean like, oh, I know what's going on in Paris. Oh, I know what's going on in Syria. I don't have a clue. But what I do know is God knows what he's doing and God is in control and Satan didn't get the upper hand for a second. God is working all of his plans according to his will as he always has. Be confident. Even as you suffer, even as you grieve, even as you go through the valley of the shadow of death, do not fear. You may suffer, but do not fear. His rod and his staff will comfort us. He will never forsake us. Have certainty in Scripture. Rely on the sovereign God. Third, submit yourself to God's word. Submit yourself to God's word. I don't know if you noticed, but did you see how often and with what detail Luke highlights the godly and righteous character of nearly all of the players in this narrative? It's at every turn. Every time he's introducing us to somebody new, Luke wants to tell us. So, so t- look, look at verse, um, chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of God. He doesn't just introduce them. He wants to listen. They're walking blamelessly in all the statutes and commandments of God. And then when Mary is told the announcement that she will give birth to the Messiah, what does she say? Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then Mary worships God, and we see her righteous response. We see Zechariah's response of faith. But probably most notably, we see it in the, in the faithfulness and fidelity of, of Mary and Joseph. And again, I, we looked at this before, but how would you react if a law or commandment came from our presidency or from Congress demanding that all of us stop our business, stop our work, and travel to the town of our birth? Now, for some of you, that wouldn't be traveling very far. I'd have to go quite a ways. My mother would have to go even further. And Joseph and Mary submit, they obey. A wicked king, a wicked Caesar, flexing his muscles, exercising his power, and they obey in faith. And Luke shows us that as they obey to an unrighteous ruler, God's plan is being perfectly filled out in and through their obedience, right? And then we see it doesn't just stop there. And you might be tempted to think that Mary and Joseph might think they get some leeway, some flexibility, because I know I feel that way. If I've been particularly good, if I've been faithful, if I've, you know, if I've done my Bible reading every day for three or four weeks, you might tend to think that gives you some sort of room to slack somewhere. Well, you know, only human. No, Mary and Joseph at every point, is the, do they obey the law and have the child circumcised on the eighth day? You bet. 
What about, what about having to travel up to Jerusalem to pay for the, the woman's uncleanness at the 40-day mark and to redeem the son? You bet they do that as well, exactly. Another journey, another trip. Because they need to obey the law. That, that's the point Luke highlights for us in verse 22 of chapter 2. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb first shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifices according to what it said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we know from the mere fact that they're giving this offering, they don't have a lot of money. Because the law prescribed two offerings you could give. There was the regular offering, but if you were poor, if you were of, of meager means, you could do the turtle doves. That's what they did. They don't have tons of money. Now later, they're going to get money, gold, from the, from the wise men, from the magi, but not now. And they make another trip and another journey because God's law called them to, and they were obedient. And Luke highlights that. In fact, the entire story of Jesus being presented at the temple is sandwiched by that. Look at the end of the story, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Luke is highlighting that that faithfulness to God, certainly it starts with a heart of faith. Faithfulness to God certainly starts with seeing and believing and trusting God. Faithfulness to God involves obedience as well. James says, faith without works is dead. And there's no room for dichotomy of I love God and I love Jesus, but I do what I want. That, that, that won't work. First John 2, by this we know that we have come to know him, that we are keeping his commandments. The one who says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. We see their faithfulness. We see their heart by what they do. And they are faithful. They are faithful. They are faithful. We need to be faithful. One, one other point, point B. Faithfulness and blessedness still involve suffering. Faithfulness and blessedness still involve suffering. We've seen their faithfulness, but not only are they faithful, they are mightily blessed, Right? What what does Mary say in the Magnificat, chapter 1? Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary was blessed. She found favor with God. Well, surely then that means she's going to have an easy life. I mean, if you're blessed of God, if you've found favor with God, then surely that means you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, if Mary had any doubts, Simeon's prophecy dashed such notions to pieces. Look at chapter 2, verse 35, looking right at Mary. Holding the Messiah in his arms, Simeon says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You blessed of God and favored with God. How does that work? I think we get it with parents. God is working things in our lives now to prepare us for glory and joys that will last eternally. 
And God knows what suffering and what trials now will yield eternal fruit later. Just as parents don't let their children eat candy all the time. Just as parents make their kids go to bed when they don't want to. God, as our Heavenly Father, is metering out in their lives. I mean, she's blessed. She's found favor. And they've got to stop what they're doing and go to Bethlehem. And then she gets told that this child and this blessing and this favor will result in a sword piercing her side. And you don't have to read the Bible very long to see the fate of the prophets, to see the fate of the apostles, to see the fate of the one in whom God was most pleased, his son in whom he was well pleased. Now God promises comfort. God promises grace. He promises to walk with us through these things, but there is no promise that we will avoid suffering. And I know that our church body is not likely to fall prey to the prosperity gospel in its full form, that you will never be sick and you can be rich, but I just want to challenge us. Have we bought into the sort of middle-class American prosperity light? If you're a good little boy and girl, if you do your devos and you go to church and you help out with Awana, your life will not have many bumps in it. Your life will be relatively smooth. Not so. We, we learn that from here. We must submit ourselves to God's word. We must be meticulous and scrupulous in our obedience to what God calls us to. And yes, we should expect comfort. And yes, we should expect joy. And yes, we should expect God to walk with us. But let us also be ready for and not surprised when suffering comes. Let us not be surprised when the suffering comes. Finally, point four. We've seen have certainty in scriptures, rely on the sovereign God. Three, submit yourself to God's word. Fourth, and this is really the, the, the most common theme in the entire two chapters, rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. As I, as I read and reread these chapters in preparation for this, I was struck again and again just how often we hear people are rejoicing or people will rejoice or the family gathered together to rejoice. What is happening in response to what God is doing in bringing the Christ into the world? There's just rejoicing and joy. It starts in chapter 1, verse 14, when Gabriel announces the news to Zechariah. You, verse 14, will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. And then, after Mary is told that she will conceive and she goes and visits Elizabeth, the child in her womb does what? Jumps for joy, right? Verse 44, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. At every point, those people who are in tune with God, those people who are of faith, those people who are justified are rejoicing, responding with joy and rejoicing as God is doing. Even Mary in the Magnificat, verse 46 and 47, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Or when the birth of John the Baptist occurs, what happens? Gabriel said many would rejoice. Verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Then Jesus is born. 
an angelic choir praises God, bursts out into praise, joyful praise to God, leading the shepherds to go and see the child. And what do they do? They marvel. And they passed on over and they left rejoicing. And finally, Jesus is presented at the table, the temple. Jesus is presented at the temple. Simeon snatches the child up in his arms. This old man promised he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Messiah. He took him up in his arms, chapter 2, verse 28, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Joy, rejoicing. That's, that's the overarching theme of these chapters. It seems like anybody who catches any understanding of what God is up to, whether it's just the neighbors in Judea around John the Baptist who haven't put everything together, but anybody who starts to grasp that God's up to something is responding with joy, is responding with excitement, is responding with praise. Or Anna, the prophetess, coming up at that very hour, verse 38 of chapter 2. She saw Jesus in the temple. She began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, to all, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, how, do, how does that work? Because I know there are some of you, I even talked to some of you who just came through the Christmas season, the, the time of the year when the birth of Jesus is put on told the story again and again and again. You get cards, you get everything, and you didn't rejoice. Or maybe you did a little, but it can get old a little bit. Those Christmas carols get kind of redundant, maybe. I don't know. There's a step in the logic in between hearing the news and joy that, that's important for us to get. And I think that step is believe. Why, why would you respond to these things with joy? Because you understand what they mean and you believe what you understand. If Jesus is just some Middle Eastern carpenter, oh, that's cool. Nothing to get excited about. And that's why I just want to look briefly at, at, at two points of Jesus. What, what Luke 2 tells us so that we might believe it and we might join in the rejoicing. First, Jesus in Luke's chapters 1 through 2 is seen to be supreme. Jesus is supreme. I'll just quickly move. Elizabeth gives us this title. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Who's Jesus? He's Lord. He's Lord. And remember, Lord is the Greek word that would be used in place of Yahweh. He's Lord. Gabriel, speaking to Mary, said, he will be called, verse, chapter 1, verse 32, the Son of the Most High. So he's Lord. He's Son of the Most High. Well, what does that mean? Jesus makes it even clearer himself. That remarkable passage when finally Jesus speaks. He addresses himself to the reader. And what are the first words that we hear of the Son of God saying? He says, did you not know I must be about my Father's house? He's the Son of God. He's Lord. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of God. 
And if that is true, do we not have reason for joy? More than that, he's fulfilling prophecy. He's the seed of Abraham, and he's David's greater son. We get this from a couple of places, but let's look at one in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 1, verse 68 through 73. Blessed Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This is is the descendant of David who's been long promised. This is the one Psalm 2 is about. He's David's greater son. Keep going, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This is the one who fulfills God's promises to David and this is the one who fulfills God's promises to Abraham. This is the seed of Abraham promised, the son of David promised. He's the Lord, he's the son of God. Then in Luke chapter 2, Simeon prophesies, and we learn that he's the savior of the world for both Jew and Gentile. Savior of the world. Verse 29, we, we started chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I have seen, this, this is your salvation. This is your savior. And he is for all peoples, for the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, if that's true, if the Lord, the son of the most high, the son of God, the seed of Abraham, David's greater son, has indeed come into the world and is indeed the savior, not just of the Jews, but all peoples, Is it not fitting? And if we believe that, if you believe that, is that not a cause for joy? Not only do we see that Jesus is supreme, however, we see that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. What I mean by that is this. We've looked at who he is. Let's briefly look at what he does. Can he be trusted? Can we rely on him? Can we commit ourselves to him? Well, the little that we see of him when he's not being acted upon, he is doing the acting, is from last week. And we see that he grows in stature and wisdom and favor. This is a diligent young man, growing in wisdom, growing in strength. And already at the age of 12, he is astonishing people with his understanding of the word. This is a faithful Messiah. This is not some 12-year-old kid playing Xbox. This is somebody about his father's business. And he always goes about his father's business. Point two, he is intent on following his father's will and word. So when we find him in the temple, what is he doing? He's sitting at the feet of the teachers learning. What do we also read? That God is pleased with him. The point being step for step. At every point where Jesus is growing, at every point where Jesus is learning, he's doing it well. The Father continues to be pleased with his growth. And I said earlier that we need to submit ourselves to God's word. We're not being called to do anything that Jesus himself was not willing to do for point three. We see he himself, he himself is submissive to his parents. So children, when your parents call you to obedience, They're not calling you to anything other than what Jesus himself was willing to do. 
And, and parents, when God calls you to be submissive to your authorities and to your governments and to the police, he's not calling you to do anything that Jesus himself did not do. He paid the temple tax. He gave to Caesar what was Caesar's. That, that's not yet. That's coming later. But I want to call the worship team up and, and just close because this is a call to joy. And it, and, but it, it's founded upon understanding who Jesus is and it's called upon, founded upon understanding what he did and, and how that matters and responding in faith and believing. But I think if, if we do understand it, if we do believe, then we can sing based upon these truths, joy to the world.